Zephaniah chapter 3. That's probably going to take you some time, so uh, no shame in using the table of contents, but uh, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Um, It took me a little bit of time to find it here this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere near you, and this morning's passage can be found on page 790, 790. Well, um, it's always a joy to be able to gather in this room. I never want to take it for granted that what's taking place and what has already taken place here this morning is our everyday experience where there's genuine love that's in this room, right? That's, that's not always the case, where people feel like family, where there are um, events and communities that are centered not just on serving themselves, but serving our city. That's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in the world. And then we get to come in this room every week and hear songs being sung by one another that remind us of the deepest um, and most beautiful truths in the universe, that the God of this universe loves us and rejoices over us and waits to be gracious to us and that we don't have to church it up when we come here. We can be just who we are because that's exactly the way that God loves us. Last week we began a new series called Resound and we're exploring over the next several weeks why we sing. Um, We can greatly underestimate the power and God's design for singing. Singing together is one of the most unique gifts that God gives us as His people as we gather together to encounter His presence, to experience His comfort, to experience His nearness. Um, It's one of those things that transforms us the most when we move from where we are and into the truths of what God says about us as His people. Um, we looked at the idea of worship last week being, in the narrow sense, singing here where our authentic selves meets the authentic God. Right? This is the place where you can be you and God can be God to you. So that's one of the reasons that we sing. And uh, I want to begin this morning with a story from uh, a pastor by the name of Sam Storms who wrote a book called the singing God. He tells the story of a woman named Susan. Her story is much like many of ours. Susan was a Christian and is a Christian, but oftentimes she doesn't feel like one. Can you identify? Susan found herself in Sam Storm's office, and she was deeply aware of her deficiencies, some patterns of self-destructive behavior, Um, had surfaced in her life. Um, She was barely holding on. She was on the verge of an emotional collapse. And as Sam Storms began to just ask her about her story, she began to open up about her dad and the way that her dad treated her. His love for her was always like a carrot that was kind of dangled out in front of her. He said, if you are pretty enough and you do enough good things 
and you don't embarrass me in public. He would say those kinds of things. If you'll do those kinds of things, then I'll love you. And she said, you know what? The truth is, I was never pretty enough, slim enough, never smart enough. The only thing that she could ever remember feeling for her, from her father was rejection, feeling that she was not enough. So then Sam asked this wonderful question, well, how do you think that God sees you? And she says, I think he sees and looks at me with pity. That was her immediate response. And he began to dig in a little bit, well, why do you say that? And she said, because I'm pitiful, right? That's the way that she internally saw herself. I wonder, in our honest moments, how would you answer that question? How does God see you? Sam began to look at Zephaniah chapter 3, which we're going to look at with Susan, and he told her one of the most stunning promises in all of Scripture that God Himself delights in her. He read Zephaniah 3.17 to her, which says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And with tears in her eyes, she said, Sam, are you sure that's talking about me? And he said, absolutely, he's talking about you. And she said, if I could only believe that's true, I think I could face anything, right? And that's honestly the point of the song that we're going to hear this morning. It's not a song that we sing, but it's a song that God sings over His people. It's a song that's meant to inform our singing. It's a song that, quite honestly, we have to hear if we're ever going to be able to rejoice and enter into His presence with joy. We have to hear, actually, God's divine perspective of us, that He actually delights in us as His people. This passage lets us eavesdrop on a song that most of us doesn't know that exists. But as we hear this song, as we lean in close, it's going to change the way that we view God and it's going to change the way that we view ourselves. And so, join with me in hearing the most beautiful song written by the greatest songwriter in all the universe, God Himself, and you All of us are its subject. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Why do we sing? We sing because God sings. Sing sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. 
The Lord, is, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, so much now we want to hear your song over us. There are so many competing voices that vie for our attention in these moments, but I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are speaking over us as your people. I pray that it would change us. I pray that it would mold us and shape us, and, it, and our response would be one of overwhelming joy. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your grace over us. I pray that you would send the Spirit to help us to hear. I pray that you would send the Spirit to help me proclaim this word to your people, which you love with an everlasting love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love this passage for a lot of reasons. But I love it most because it is the loudest possible statement that God can make about his delight in you personally. It's very easy for us to have our own perspective and to bring our own experiences and what we think God must think of us and allow that to shape the soundtrack of our lives. This song in Zephaniah chapter 3 is meant to be the soundtrack and the anthem of our lives. It's meant to drown out all the other songs that are vying for your attention here this morning. Now, Christmas, my wife gave me one of the greatest gifts she's ever given me. I probably used this gift more than any. She gave me a pair of wireless Beats headphones, you know, the Dr. Dre style. Yeah, I'm sure, like... What a gift. I mean, um, you combine that with like Spotify and Apple Music, and I literally can put any message that I want in my head. And um, now I use this term loosely, like I began to jog over the last year. Um, some people would call it running. Um, I call it, I think I would be a really good speed walker, to be honest with you. But that's that's kind of what I'm doing. And you could find me oftentimes during the week um, at Craighead Forest Park just running around the lake. And um, there's one time in particular over the last year that, that stands out to me. I mean, I get so locked in when I'm running, like I'm hearing the songs that, um, you know, that I hand selected to kind of help me on my run that I kind of drowned out everything else that's going on around me. And all of a sudden, it seemed like the, the roar of 
hoofbeats behind me, you know, and so I wondered what in the world was going on, um, and evidently it was the cross-country team from Arkansas State University. Um, I run at like a 12-minute pace, and they were coming by at about a six-minute pace, and it took every bit of my uh, 40-year-old body to get off of the path so that they didn't run me down, and I, you know, I mean, they should put a warning label on those headphones. I mean, it's really hard to hear anything else except the noise that's coming through um, your earbuds. But that's exactly what this song is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to drown out all of the noise. It's supposed to be the one song that triumphs all of the other songs that are vying for our attention, that want to tell us who we are. It wants to tell us our value and our worth. And God himself gives us his perspective in Zephaniah chapter 3. So it brings me to my first point. We sing because judgment has been put away. Look at verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What makes this song so amazing is that it's sung over people who are guilty. It's sung over people not who are at their best, but are at their worst. It's actually sung over a group of people who are proverbially have their hand in the cookie jar. They're people that have been caught red-handed. They are people that are actually running away from God instead of people that are running to God. And God says, I am going to pursue you with my love. I'm going to quiet you with my love. And I'm actually going to remove and take away the judgments that are against you. Now, when we begin to talk about the judgment of God, you're going to fall into two categories this morning. There's a group of people in this room for whom the judgment of God is an ever-present reality. Where you are most familiar with what you perceive to be his displeasure instead of his pleasure. You're a person that is waiting constantly for the other shoe to drop. A person that experiences the reality of judgment in the form of condemnation. That can be when you open up the Bibles, all you see is a list of your failures. When you come in this room, all you hear are people that seemingly are, have it all together. And you're here and you're a mess and you don't understand why. So there's that group of people that are familiar with the judgment of God. And then on... The other hand, there's another group of people that really don't understand what is this big deal about grace. Like, why do they talk about this every week? For you, the judgment of God seems like an antiquated idea that, that maybe old-time preachers use to kind of scare people into the kingdom. And for you, I believe that God wants us to be able to see Him as he is. Because if you never feel the reality of judgment against you, right? Grace will never be amazing to you. So this is an amazing picture where God says, I will 
take away the judgment against you. Now, even if um, it's only in America, I think that we could invent a God that doesn't have wrath, right? It's only in a world where we kind of can be our own gods at many times, where we um, kind of control our own lives, that we can dismiss the idea of judgment. But every person knows fundamentally that something's wrong with the world, right? Everybody fundamentally knows that there's something wrong with themselves. I mean, um, just take, for instance, the election, right? Every four years, this becomes the most important election in the history of our country. Why? Because people long for a righteous ruler to come and to fix this mess. We get the idea of justice. We get the idea that something is wrong. We long for justice. I mean, there's no one in this room that when there is a child that is harmed doesn't long for things to be made right, for someone to have to pay for the sins that were committed against the child. Um, take our brothers and sisters that are worshiping in secret in the Middle East, right? I mean, their hope is not that there's no wrath in God. Their, their hope is that God will clear away their enemies one day, right? That they don't have to take justice into their own hands, but that God himself will judge the world both good and bad one day. So the reality of judgment is real, and it is a hope for the people of God. And we can kind of get our minds around the idea of judgment when it comes to a child being abused or our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are, live under the constant threat of terror. But what we don't understand is when it comes to ourselves, we don't long for justice, right? We long for understanding. We long for mercy. We long for patience. We don't get what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that the same things that exist inside the world exist inside of us, right? That anger, like when we get angry with our neighbor, it's the same thing as murdering them, right? That's what Jesus indicts us. Or when we lust after something that's not ours, after a person that doesn't belong to us, that that's the same thing as committing adultery. So those things rightly calls us to come under the judgment of God. Now, if there's no such thing as judgment, what was going on for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was staring into the cup of God's wrath. It wasn't something to trifle with. He began to sweat drops of blood and he prayed three times if there was any way for him to be delivered from the cup of God's wrath that God would do that. Right, But he drank that cup for you and I so that we could hear the song that God sings over us that judgment has been put away. The beauty of this passage is if you are personally aware of your need for judgment and you place your faith in God's judgment bearer, Jesus Christ, who took away sins on the cross, there is no judgment left for you. 
That is the good news. That's why he says, sing aloud, shout for joy. The judgments against you have been put away, right? So if you are here and you're one of those that are constantly living under the weight of sin and judgment, the judgments against you have been put away. And if you're here and you don't know why grace is so amazing, you must hear this reality of the judgment of God for sins against God and sins against other people that they can either be poured out on Jesus or they will be poured out on you so you can run to him for forgiveness and for freedom and for joy today and you can enter into the same song. Christianity makes no sense apart from the judgment of God, right? So when we gather in this room, when we say you can come as you are, we can come as we are because Jesus who was sinless was slain for us so that we could receive forgiveness, so that we receive this song of pardon, so that the worst thing about you no longer defines you, but the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of sins defines you. Listen to this quote from Zach Eswine. This is for you. When you struggle, this is for you when you're more aware of judgment instead of forgiveness. He uses the phrase, you may be right, but Jesus. You may be right. Things are worse than I thought, but Jesus. You might be right. All is lost, but Jesus. You may be right. I am abandoned, but Jesus. You may be right. I am forfeit, but Jesus. You may be right. I should stay down, but Jesus. You might be right. It could be too late for me, but Jesus. You may be right. I am out of reach, but Jesus. You might be right. They might be better off without me, but Jesus. You might be right. I could deserve to die, but Jesus. We rejoice, not because we're not sinners, but because we are and we have a great Savior. So no matter what you think defines you here this morning, hear the words, but Jesus. We rejoice now because judgment has been put away. It has been tasted and paid for by Jesus so that nothing else remains for us except forgiveness and love and peace and joy. And what we do when we walk through these doors every week, and it's been taking place for over 103,000 Sundays since the tomb was empty, people gather collectively to say, sin has been paid for. It has been atoned for. The grave is empty. Death, where is your sting? That's why we sing, because judgment has been put away. And that's enough to sing forever, right? Forgiveness is not preliminary. It is the essence of the Christian life. We never move past that. This brings me to my next point. We sing because God sings. Look at verses 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
Verse 17 is the most beautiful song in all the world, and we are its subject. Now, I was thinking back to the time when um, I was an amateur Romeo, when I was pursuing my wife. Um, <laughs> I, I would try my best to write poetry to her. And it was some wonderful lyrics like, Roses are red, violets are blue, my love for you is true. Um, bad, right? I mean, it's just not my gift. But you know what? It worked. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can borrow that, like single guys. I mean, just write that down. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm better than I think. Um, but the reason that it worked is because I was rejoicing over her and she was the subject of the poetry. It didn't matter that um, I would never get a job as a greeting card writer. Like, that, that doesn't matter to her. But what matters to her is that she is the subject, right? And that's what's so crazy about Zephaniah chapter 3. God is the one singing. He's the one composing this song. And we are the subjects. It almost seems wrong to say, right? It seems like maybe they got the order mixed up. Yeah, I mean, I get that we sing to God and I get that we delight in Him. But what this says is God delights in you and He sings over you, right? That's an amazing truth. And that, I mean, forgiveness in and of itself would be enough to sing, but... My goodness, now that God himself sings over us exactly as we are, Sam Storms also in his book, The Singing God, says this. He says, What makes life livable is enjoying the joy that comes from knowing one is enjoyed by God. The one thing that gives us hope, the one thing that conquers despair and brings strength for the struggle is the assurance that no matter how bad the problem may be, God loves us. Pain becomes bearable and tomorrow no longer terrifies when your soul is touched with the reality of God's delight in you. That's why we're slowing down, right? We don't instinctively get this message. We live in a world that's full of judgment. We live in a world that says we have to earn our way and pay our way and pay our dues. And what this says is God gives us everything up front that he delights in you. That means he delights in what he's making you. That means it's okay to be a person that's in progress. That's okay to be rough around the edges. That means God's not anxious about your sanctification right now. The things that you think you should be much further along in. He's patient and he's kind and he delights in you despite you. His love for you was never based on your perfection before, right? I mean, this is written to people that deserve judgment just like you and I. His love is not predicated on us having it all together and it will not end because we don't have it all together. He loves us because he loves us. And then I love this phrase. We, we don't have to fear evil. And it says, he will quiet us with his love. The truth is, we live in a world that's full of chaos that we can't control. There are constant things that are battling for our attention. And we end up with a noisy heart, right? We pick up burdens. 
we pick up cares, we pick up anxieties, right? I mean, it could be relational strife, it could be financial issues, it could be something inside your marriage, it could be something with kids, it could be health concerns. All of those things cause us to arrive each and every week in this room with a noisy heart. And what God says is that through His love, He will quiet us with His love. Now, what this reminds me of is the picture of a, a crying baby that's quieted by his mother's love. Um, each and every child that we've had, there came a point in time where we, um, Jen just became so exhausted that she handed me probably about a two-week-old baby and said, I have to sleep. You're going to have to deal with this. And so there, I remember, and she did it in a nice way. Like, she's very kind. So I remember, and this began with my daughter Hannah. This is the one I think that, that stands out to me. I mean, this was like an hour and a half of Hannah and dad getting to know each other. And she screamed at me for an hour and a half. And then I think I wanted to cry more than she wanted to cry and I remember Jen, like, I mean, God bless her. Like, I mean, she slept like there was no tomorrow. And she woke up. She's like, how'd things go? <laughs> and um, Hannah was crying. And I would hand Hannah to her. And she would instantly stop crying, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. If you're holding a crying baby, hey, back to the mom, instantly quiet. That's what the presence of God is meant to do in corporate worship. We're meant to hear of God's love for us and over us and his delight in us. And it's meant to quiet us. So we come in this room so that our noisy hearts are quieted by his love. God is saying, I know that you're naturally fearful. And I'm here to comfort you with my presence. God is an expert at quieting noisy, restless hearts with his love. Which brings me to our final point. God's song changes our story. God's song changes our story. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So what this teaches us is that the Lord's song over us is transformative. Like as we begin to hear His song, People that feel rejected, people that feel unwanted and unloved, begin to rejoice. They're the people that always feel like outcasts, people that feel like they lack strength, people that always feel like they're on the outside. They get invited into the inner circle. They get to come in to the party. They get to come in to the festival. That's what happens in this room. There's always room at the table for everyone as the people of God. This is a place where God brings people together from diverse backgrounds, and he brings us all together to sing and to rejoice and all that he is about and all that he is doing. And I love this phrase that he takes our shame 
and he turns it into praise. I've been reading a book called Rising Strong by Brene Brown. Um, I've mentioned her before. She is a researcher and a storyteller. Brene Brown, after decades of research, she said shame is an issue for every living person. I mean, all you have to do, she said 85% of people that she's interviewed over her life can point to something in their childhood that began to define how people saw themselves. Um, It doesn't have to necessarily be in your childhood, but I bet you can think of ways that you tend to view yourself when you're like Susan, when you say, what does God see? There's an answer to that question. Shame is a powerful emotion It's different from guilt in the fact that guilt says, what I did is bad. Shame says, I am bad. Shame says, I am wrong. Instead, where guilt says, what I did is wrong. Guilt says, what I did is despicable. Shame says, I'm despicable. Right? Everybody deals with the issue of shame. And... I'm going to read a quote from Brene Brown. I think it's really helpful. And then I'm going to insert the gospel because it's not necessarily written from a... I do believe she knows Jesus, but this isn't written from a particularly gospel framework. But she says this. She says, The irony is that we attempt to disown our difficult stories, right? To appear more whole or more acceptable, but our wholeness... And even our wholeheartedness actually depends on the integration of all of our experiences, including the falls. Or you can insert shame. In another place, she says, We own our stories so that we don't spend our lives being defined by them or denying them. And while the journey is long and difficult at times, it is a path to a a more wholehearted life. So what she's saying is there... Like most of us, we tend to want to ignore the shame that we feel. We want to push it down. We either want to busy ourselves with busyness or activity. We want to deny it. We want to cover it up. We want to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. We want to run and we want to hide. And what she said, the key to battling shame is that we need to own our stories. And I I think that's true, but I want to take it a step further. And I want to insert the gospel at this point. This is the good news about Zephaniah chapter 3. God owns your shame story. Okay, You don't have to own it. God owned it for you on the cross. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. That Jesus endured the cross despising the shame so that we would know the forgiveness and the acceptance of God. So that thing that, thinks, that makes you feel unacceptable, that makes you feel rejected, that makes you feel worthless. God says in Zephaniah chapter 3, I own your shame story. I'm going to take your shame, the thing that you're most ashamed of, and I'm going to turn it into praise. Now, this is, this is the key, because if you've ever heard me say something like this before, I, I'm sure you have. Shame is like an unwelcome intruder. It can come in at any point and at any time. And it's something that we have to battle continually. But when you come in this room, 
This is, active, this is us actively declaring war on shame, allowing God to own our shame stories. And as we hear His song and His delight over us, we begin to put all of those things that we are ashamed of and all of the things that we are afraid of, and we begin to see God as a God that so identifies with us that He took our shame upon the cross so that now instead of rejection, we experience acceptance. Instead of brokenness, we get to experience healing. That's the miracle of the gospel that we sing about each and every week. That we can come as we are. That God himself is a God that identifies with us in our shame. That Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was crucified naked for the world to scorn and mock. So that when you feel mocked and you feel ashamed that you can identify with him. And you get his record of righteousness and grace. And he owns your shame. And we do that continually each and every week. That's what Sundays are about, right? This isn't about some religious duty that we perform. It's about experiencing every week the miracle of the gospel for our own stories and our own lives. And this is is the promise. Look at verse 20. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. That's an amazing promise that people that were outcast, people that were lame, people that needed to be um, saved by Jesus now become the envy of the world because that's what everybody longs for, a place to be perfectly known and perfectly loved and perfectly accepted. And that only happens through the gospel. That's why the people of God are the hope and the light to the world because we're the only place that says you actually can be just as you are because God did what he did for us on the cross. So God himself removes our shame. And that's what makes, this is, this is why we're not ingrown, okay? That makes our worship missional, right? As people see people that don't have it all together but receiving hope and life, it begins to testify to the world about the power and the grace of God himself. And the world will see and the world will marvel. So, No matter how deep your shame story is, no matter how many difficulties you've gone through in your life, God's perspective is meant to swallow up your perspective of yourself. And you can't do that by yourself, right? Because when you're alone, I said this last week, you feel alone. But when you link arms with fellow strugglers on the way, You get to say, yes, this message is true. I want to build my life upon this truth. That's why we need one another. That's why we don't just meet in coffee shops or in homes. We gather together so that we can sing to the king of the universe who sings over us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your song. I pray that your song would inform our song. Thank you that you care about us enough to enter into our stories, to bear our shame, that you delight in us. I pray that we would know your forgiveness, that we would know that judgment has been taken away. I pray that it would make a difference in the circumstances that we're facing and that we would experience real joy and real transformation. In Jesus' name, amen.
the song that we get to hear. The loudest note of that song is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he received the judgment that we deserved. Where he took our shame. Where he took our sin. So that we can hear the Father's approval and his well done on our behalf. So this meal that we're about to celebrate represents his victory for us so that we can draw near. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to hide in the shadows no matter how dark this room is right now. Right? That was a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) Shouldn't make a joke in communion. All right. (laughs) His body is broken for us so that we can be made whole. Right? This whole Sunday service is an exercise in healing, right? Removing our sins. So I would encourage you to think about the things that you tend to think define you. To have those things in mind as you come to the table and as you taste grace. Um, The bread just represents Jesus' body that's broken so that we could experience healing. The cup represents His blood that washes away all of our sins, that gives us a clean conscience so that we can worship with joy. Um, Just a a couple words of practical instruction. If you're in the front half of the room, you can come to these two tables. If you're in the back half of the room, you can go to the back two tables. And you just tear off a little piece of the bread, and you dip it in the cup, and you get to taste what grace tastes like. This isn't for perfect people. This is for people that know they don't have it all together. The way that you become worthy to take the Lord's Supper, if you've ever heard that phrase, is by recognizing your need. Right? Don't come to the table if you think you have it all together or you don't need Jesus. But if you know that you need a Savior, you need a mediator, this, this is a meal for sinners to come home and to experience mercy and grace. I'm going to pray and then you can come and take the elements as you're ready.